Are you a small business owner looking to scale your business and your profits? Are you looking for strategies to find balance in your life as an entrepreneur? Stay tuned while Craig Staley, founder of HG Site Design, a website design and marketing agency, shares strategies from successful small business owners, authors, and experts on how to do just that. Let's join Craig as he explores how we can all take our businesses to the next level on the Small Business School podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Small Business School podcast. So glad to have you back. My guest today is James Patrick. He is an award-winning photographer, a best-selling author, and the founder of Fitposium, which is an annual conference that helps fitness entrepreneurs grow their careers. James obviously does a lot, and I'm probably not even doing his bio justice. He has a lot of irons in the fire. And, and actually, that's probably one of the highlights, in my opinion, of our conversation today is the advice he gives people and entrepreneurs who are looking to try to do everything all at once. And I think you'll really find it interesting, his viewpoint and about his success and where he's at and all the things that he's doing right now and where you might be at or where you aspire to be. So James is not just a, a photographer. He's he's a business person. And he, that really shines through today on the episode. He has so much great advice. I know he had me thinking, and I'm going to listen to this episode a couple times. So without further ado, our guest today, James Patrick. All right. I'd like to welcome my next guest. He is James Patrick, an award-winning photographer, best-selling author, and the founder of Fitposium. It's an annual conference that guides fitness entrepreneurs to grow their careers. How are you today, James? Doing good, Craig. Good to chat with you, buddy. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Before we get kind of into the meat of the interview, can you give us a little bit of your personal background? Absolutely. So my background, depending on how far we want to take the timeline back, but really, I was a journalist turned photographer who really struggled with identifying as a photographer. And the reason I say that is we've all had that. So many listeners of your show will have that voice in the back of their head to say, who am I to do this thing? There are people who are doing it already. There are people who are better than me at doing it. There are people who, you know, they have more experience at doing it. So that was a struggle that I really had for a long time. So out of college, I took a, what I considered to be a safe job, which was in marketing. And I spent the better part of a decade working in marketing while I still had this photography business on the side, kind of gnawing beneath the surface, needing to come out. And at some point, it got to a point where I was essentially just working two full-time jobs. I had my corporate career, but then I had this full-time job in marketing. I realized that my God, I'm spending all my time, my sick time, my vacation time, my evenings, my weekends working on this side hustle. Maybe I should just do that. And, and at that point, I made that transition over, left corporate America, launched my photography business. But really over the last decade, my focus has actually been bringing, I'm so glad I had that, bringing that marketing experience back into the forefront and kind of combining my experience both as an artist working in the media with understanding marketing, understanding advertising, understanding brand development to help my clients really in a very robust way. 
Interesting. So how, how long ago, it sounds like you've been interested in photography for a long time. It just, what wasn't something you thought was going to be your career originally? I remember the first time I actually picked up a camera, I was maybe junior high and thinking, and I thought out loud to say, you know, photography, that'd be an interesting career. And I said in front of my father who said, well, it's an expensive hobby. Okay. Put the camera down because I mean, two things that you know you don't tell a 13 or 14 year old is expensive and hobby. It's like, no, I was obsessed with money and trying yeah. to make money, how to get more money, and and expensive didn't seem didn't seem the way to do it. I, the, when I actually became a photographer, I'll, I'll use that very loosely. I was 19. I was working as a journalist, and my editor at the time forced me to become a photographer for an assignment because we just had no staff photographers left in the office. So it was like, hey, we need you to take photos to go along with an article you're writing. Here's a staff camera. That was really my entry point and my first published photos. And at some point, I realized I really like making imagery. Maybe I'll do that more than write articles. And even though, you know, to this day, you know, I don't know, 20 years later, I still somewhat identify as a writer. I still write a lot, but photography is something that I consider more my DNA at this point. So how did you transition from getting a a staff camera to go out and take pictures for a story into the fitness industry? I mean, it's a lot of times I think of a photographer and, you know, the natural thought is, oh, they take wedding photos or baby photos or senior portraits or whatever, you know, that seems like the natural progression. How did it end you up in the the fitness industry? You know, I think I was fortunate, Craig, in that my first gig was working in-house in Mm. media. You know, I was a journalist turned photojournalist. So after I worked at that paper, I got a job at another paper and I got a job originally as a staff writer. After I think three issues, the publisher of that paper who was who's an early mentor of mine transitioned me out of the out of the writing pool and put me into the photographer pool so all of a sudden I was a staff photographer now I like to think that he saw something in my photography work when the truth is he may have just hated my writing. I don't know. (laughs) Either way, I'm now a staff photographer at this other newspaper. A few issues later, there's an opening to actually become the photo editor of this newspaper. And he really pushed me into that. There was an opening a few months later to become a photo editor of a new startup magazine. He helped me land that gig. So I spent my early days working in-house as a photo editor, which meant, yes, I was also a staff photographer but I also had to manage photographers and really get a keen visual sense of what imagery goes where into a publication. If we have an A1 story, which is a front page cover of a newspaper, who am I sending out on this assignment? What's the assignment? Who's the best photographer I have on my staff for this assignment? Going through their thousand images to assess what image lands on the cover, did the same thing at a magazine. So I got a real intimate understanding of how images are used in in media. So when I launched my career as a freelance photographer, it was only natural that it was often with magazines. And in my career, I've ended up shooting 500 magazine covers. Now, fitness was a it was a choice. You know, around 2008, the economy's really dipping down. I'm still working both jobs at this point. I have my corporate career and I'm working as a photographer, but I'm losing all my clients as a photographer because they're all going out of business. Now, at this time, as a photographer, I did what a lot will do early in a career, especially a freelance career, is they say yes to any project. And they chase every project because there's no real identity behind the work, there's no real style. It's just, 
you need photos. I take photos. I take your photos. That was really as far as I thought about because I was so afraid of not getting work. So senior portraits. I never did weddings, but you know, commercial work, architecture. One of my first big clients was an architecture client. Events, did lots of events, fashion, headshots. I mean, you name it, I would, I would put it in front of my camera. But the problem was, was that when things got tight and when clients' budgets got constrained, why would they hire a generalist? If you need to hire someone for a fashion campaign and you only have X dollars, why would you hire a generalist who can do fashion when you can, for the same money, just get a fashion photographer who excels at it? You don't have time to test anymore. You have to hire what works. Hire the fashion photographer. Same with the, the corporate photographer. Same with the architecture photographer. So I was losing a lot of work because one, clients were going on business. But two, I wasn't the best at anything. I was good at everything, not the best at anything. So I looked at, well, thank God I still have my corporate career. Maybe I'll just hone down and just do one thing and just have it be a little side hustle thing. But what's that one thing? And I'm reading magazines like Entrepreneur, Forbes, Inc., Fast Company, just to not because I'm looking for my next photography breakthrough, but just because I'm curious to see what's happening in my ecosystem. And I'm reading that the health and wellness industry is about to explode that even though the economy is in a recession and it's going down quick, this is an industry that has proven to be recession-proof that is ascending upwards even while most of the economy is trending down. I was like, well, man, that's interesting. I really like working with athletes. I really like working with people in the, in the health and wellness field. It's something that I have an affinity towards. There was no fitness industry at the time, at least definitely not in photography. I was like, but maybe I could push into that. So it was a choice. And I says, well, if I'm going to do this, I have to, I have to be the best at like, this has to be my thing. I have to own this. So what are the, so I have to rebuild my book a little bit, but what are the clients locally that would hire it? And I remember during my lunch breaks, during my during during the evenings, I would just pick up the phone and start calling people, local magazines that would shoot health and fitness portraiture. I would call ad agencies, I'd call local companies. I just did lots of research, picked up the phone a lot, and that turned into a job, which turned into 10 jobs, which turned into a hundred jobs. And then flash forward, all of a sudden, this fitness industry explodes, and I'm right at the the forefront of it. And that wave is what allowed me to make that transition away from that corporate job. Because at that point, I was just slamming with the health and wellness stuff. But because I made that choice and I was, I was out ahead of it when that industry really, really started to grow. Wow. What an awesome foresight to kind of see that coming and doing your research and, and really picking your niche and, and going with it. That's, that's amazing. Can you give us a little bit of background about, you know, you've I assume you're still doing photos, but you've also started this event called Fitposium. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. What I was noticing was as I was building my business within health and wellness, most of the people I worked with, and this, this goes across any industry, but so many people learn how to excel at their job. Okay. So take photography as an example. I talk to photographers all the time who are excellent at being a technical photographer or highly creative and can create the most visually stunning imagery. And then when you ask them, well, how do you get the work? They fall silent because as much as they've learned how to do the work, no one has ever sat them down to teach them how to get the work. And I thought about myself as a journalist. No one taught me how to get jobs as a journalist. I just knew 
maybe innately or maybe through guidance, through mentorship, that I had to pick up the phone a lot, that I had to build lots of connections and lots of relationships. But so many of my health and wellness clients were struggling to understand how to build a brand, how to market that brand that they built, and then how to profit from their brands. Well, that doesn't bode well for my future if all my future, if I see all my clients on a path to go out of business because they don't know how to market their stuff. So this is, well, I got a background in marketing. I understand brand development. Why don't we have conversations about this? And that was the idea. What would happen if we gathered a group of people together within an industry to share best practices, to share ideas, and to strategize together about how they can grow their brands and their businesses? And that's how we launched the Fitposium Conference. And that was back in 2015. And we, we had a modest group. We had 55 people crammed into a tiny conference room at a Holiday Inn Express. And from there, over seven years, I mean, now we've had over 1,500 attendees go through our conference. Uh, but the pillars are the same. Like, let's help our entrepreneurs become unapologetic about the pursuit of success that they want to have within their business. That's great. So, you know, I, I guess just me noticing, you know, when I'm on social media, other places, you know, you talked about that explosion of the the fitness industry that's happened over the last 10 or more years. You know, there's tens of thousands of people that are on every platform, whether it's Instagram or TikTok or whatever the platform is trying to become a fitness influencer. In your opinion, what's the best way to build a brand in the in the fitness industry? I would say don't try to be the influencer. Allow the influencer status to be the icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. The goal should be to ideate out a solution that you're providing. What solution are you providing? Because your audience has an aspirational identity. They have something that they want to attain. For most of the people within the ecosystem that I'm a part of, maybe it's weight loss, maybe it's body transformation, maybe it's muscle gain, maybe it's added confidence, maybe it's to improve their health, maybe it is just an overall sense of trying to improve energy, have better relationships. I mean, there's so much that falls into that into that Venn diagram of why people choose to, to make an improvement in their health and wellness. But to understand who your target audience is. So I think that's the first thing is, who is your message for? Because if you try to make it for everyone and you water it down, you essentially shave off all the edges. You do what I did in my photography career early on, which is I was good at a lot of things, but I was great at nothing. And it's really easy to ignore that. But when you hone down and when you get niche specific about who you are here to serve and how you are going to serve them, then me as a consumer, or let's just even say audience, I'm not even a customer yet. Me as an audience member, I now know within the snap of a finger, who you are, what you do. And more importantly, I know why you matter in the context of my life. My attention is so valuable and there's so much vying for my attention. I need to understand what value you give to me. So the first is to understand who your audience is so that you're targeting the right people with the right messaging. Okay. From there, it's about nurturing that audience. Because just because I know who you exist does not mean I trust you, does not mean I have a rapport with you, doesn't mean I even like you, okay? So building an audience, I, I always say that an audience is not a lead. A lead is someone who signals back to you. A lead is someone who's shown interest. A lead is someone who engages with you as if you are trying to engage with them, 
All right. Our goal should not just be to build an audience. Our goal should be to build leads. And one of the best ways to differentiate a lead from just someone who's in your audience is how much they take advantage of the value you give them. If you were to hone in on, like, let's look at social platforms. You have three goals that you could achieve with your social platform and your audience on your social platform. You do not need to achieve all three, but you need to at least achieve one. Number one would be entertainment. Now, entertainment, that's a hard push for a lot of people. You know, if, if entertainment's not your jam, do not think you have to be entertaining, but you need to do one of the other two. Number two would be inform. Okay. So to educate your audience, to teach them like information and education, that's the one I lean into the most and probably, probably use well with your podcast, right? Number three would be to inspire. Okay. So to lift up, to inspire, to motivate, to give people the belief that they can do something that they did not see in themselves before. But that's it. When you look at the, all the different accounts that you follow on social media, chances are they fall into one of those three categories. Okay. You follow it to be entertained, you follow it to be informed, or you follow it to be inspired. So you have to know your lane and you have to really hone in. Like I said, you can achieve multiple of these, but you do, you're not required to achieve all three. But once you understand that, put together a problem solution matrix. Your audience has X number of problems, write that on the left side. All the things that people come to you that they have as questions, that they have as complications or, or obstacles that are in their path. And then the right column, write your approach, your solution, your revised thought process or methodology on how to correct these. That right column becomes your content. And when you focus on that right column, that content that solves your audience's problems, that's what builds trust. That's what builds rapport. So now we come into the third phase, which is conversion opportunities. Because when you build great leads, you build the right awareness. And from there, you properly reinforce your value to that audience through great content. Then you can have the opportunity for conversion. You will increase your sales. So I really look at those three pillars of the three pillars we focus on, build the right awareness, nurture that awareness, show up for them, even when they have yet to invest in you because their attention is valuable and we have to honor that. And then that leads us into the third phase, which is conversion opportunities, which my feeling on that is you don't get what you don't ask for. If you never ask for sales, you will never achieve sales. So we have to have conversion opportunities to ascend them from being a lead into being a client. That makes a lot of sense. And such a, such a great point of just because they're following you doesn't mean they're a lead yet. They want you to provide value. They need to, you know, the whole no like, and trust you before, before you probably have that opportunity to sell. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, that whole process that you defined out so well in your mind, and obviously it's different for everybody, but in your mind, how long of a process is that from bringing someone into your audience to converting them? Is that a two-week thing, two-month thing, two-year thing, probably somewhere in between? That is such a good question because a immutable rule of sales is a client will only purchase when they are ready to purchase, which by the way, is never when we want them to purchase. Okay. So we as salespeople, we want the immediacy. We want people to see our stuff and to be so blown away that they're just like, I have got to get this right now. I've got to get in. Sadly, that's not how it happens. And the length of the nurture process is going to vary client to client. You've probably gotten this where someone hires you for a service or for or purchase a product and says, I've been following you for years. 
I get it all the time, right? I get it as a photographer. I've been following you for years. That meant it took years for them to be in my nurture sequence before they felt ready to do that conversion, okay? Then there are some people who purchase within five seconds. They see it, they love it, they gotta have it, okay? So they go through that journey super fast, all right? My goal as a business person, as, as a business owner, is to have enough conversion opportunities so that when someone is ready to convert, they do not have to wait to make that conversion. Think of it like you're on a highway and you have off-ramps. Those off-ramps are the conversion events. So whether that is an evergreen webinar cycle, whether that is a, a sales loop like we're doing right now for our conference, whether that is me doing a short-time promotion, whether that's just an online cart, whatever it is, those have to be there so that when they are ready, there's that next step for them or at least a waiting list for them to feel like they're getting that next step. Okay, or an application process, whatever it is. So I know that's a long way to say, oh, it depends on the client, but it really, it does. So what you have to look at is, are you shortening the time it takes for someone to convert with you? And are, do you have a proper nurture sequence set up that they feel taken care of and that it's not too long until that next sales opportunity comes up? That's a great point. And, and not only can their nurture cycle probably be different based on the the client before they feel comfortable with you, but they may have that trust for you with, with you for a year. They just don't have a need for your services. So there's, yeah, there's that, be that. that possibility as well. That's a really big point. And I look at that like when I do outbound marketing, like for myself as a photographer, I do lots of outbound marketing as a photographer, but no one needs a, you know, you might not need a photographer this month or this quarter, right? But if I continue to do that outbound marketing to get in front of them, or to at least be on deck if they already have a service provider, to at least be the backup and letting them know that I'm that backup and showing up and having that proactive follow-up with them so that they know that I'm there, I'm going to be top of mind when that next opportunity does come around. Very good point. So, you know, I think I've, I had to come to terms with this myself as I kind of started getting started with my own business and you start following different individuals in the online space. And there's all these different things, whether it's a mastermind or a funnel or a this or a that. And, you know, I'm, I'm reading through some of your stuff and, you know, you've, you, like you mentioned, you've done over 500 magazine covers, 400 podcast episodes. You've now done seven of your events. You have a best-selling book, you have a mastermind. It's a lot of things. And usually my advice to myself and to others is, okay, find something, be really good at it and focus on that. Don't, you know, go to the next shiny object, but you're doing all these things so well. How do you find time to do all these things so well? They didn't all start at the same time. And I think that's, that's the distinction. If I try to start right now, we're running eight companies. And if I try to launch all eight simultaneously, I would still be trying to launch all eight 20 years later. My first focus was my photography career. And that's still, it's, it's a primary focus, top three focus for me. And then from there, the conference had that organic evolution, right? And that became a top focus of mine. We have the mastermind. We own a graphic and web design agency. We, we are opening a photo studio and commercial production studio right now. We're launching a few media outlets right now. So there's a lot that's happening. But the way it's able to happen is I don't operate in all my businesses. I own the businesses. So an example would be, like in my photography business, 
early on, I did everything in my photography business. I, I obviously I took the photos, I edited the photos. I was the one doing all the marketing and sales for it, which I still do a lot of that, but I was also the one designing all my, my promotional materials. I was also the one building out my website. I was also the one registering all the trademark information for all my photos. I was also the one doing all the books and the taxes and I did everything. And early on, for many entrepreneurs, we have to, right? We don't have, we don't have the cash flow to, to end up hiring someone. But I can tell you, like the thing that I wasted the most time on early on was, was graphic and web design. I wasted so much damn time on this because I was so afraid to hire someone else to do it for me. It was the first thing I ended up hiring was a web designer. And she still works for me, you know, almost 20 years later. That saved me so much freaking time that I was able to make more money. Because I had all that time extra to apply to something else, right? I think one of the next things I ended up hiring was help with marketing, right? Now, I worked in marketing for a long time. But for me to run all the marketing across all my brands, that's a lot of time I'm putting in, okay? But to have help with marketing, with seeing that overall picture, with seeing the things that I'm overlooking, with even the help of the implementation of our marketing strategies right there, took even more work off my plate. So when I look at like hiring someone, what I end up doing is I end up listing out all the tasks that I have on a day-to-day basis, or just look at it weeks, like in a week, what, what am I working on? And out of those, which of those tasks actually move the needle? Meaning for us, move the needles, which of those tasks are the tasks that cannot be replaced? Not that I don't want to replace, not that I think at the forefront of my mind, oh, no one else could ever do this, right? But literally the only things that bring in the revenue for the business, right? The things that no one else but me could do. And if it, if, and, and by the way, there's only like three to five of those in the list of a hundred things, which means everything else can be subbed out. Okay. And if it can be subbed out, why am I doing it myself? Why am I taking that time? So that's what led us to like, like our graphic and web design agency. That was something we were able to launch. And on average, I might spend, it has to be under five hours a month on it. Maybe maybe less than that, maybe four, maybe three on some months. But yet we have three people working at that company and they're doing outstanding and we're constantly increasing our portfolio and the services that we're able to offer through it. The same thing we're, we're trying to aim with this commercial production studio, which we plan to open later this year. Yeah, I'll be, I own it and we have, I have a co-owner on it, but we're going to hire someone to help manage it and help this shift for us. And this is the difference between always working in your business and working on your business, shifting from the operator to the owner. So I know that was kind of a long, long-winded way, but it's really those two things. It's, it's one, understanding what you can sub out that you do not need to do yourself. And then two, not doing everything all at once. Like You're able to tear this out and prioritize what needs focus this month or this quarter or this year versus trying to do it all at once. Yeah. I think the the thing that a lot of us see when we're looking at people online, whether it's yourself or a Pat Flynn or other people in the online space, you see the current state, you see all that has been built, but you don't see the 10, 20 years of grind getting to that part where you're, like you said, you're doing your own bookkeeping, you're doing this and you're slowly offloading that to other people and managing only the the things that you need to manage. It's it's, I think it's difficult and overwhelming for entrepreneurs just starting to see that and think, well, how can I do all this stuff? Honestly, that's one of my biggest frustrations in our industry. And it's, you know, and I got to say, like, I probably am not helping the narrative because 
it is increasingly frustrating early on within a career to see the success of others, but not see the amount of work, effort, or the steps that they had to take, not to get where they are now, but to get to where they were 10 years ago that they're not talking about, that they're not showing. And, you know, thanks to social media, it's been brought out even more at large where we're only using our channels to show kind of the greatest hits of our lives. And we're not talking about the steps it took to cultivate this. And, you know, when I talk to lots of entrepreneurs and maybe you run into this too, I run into so many entrepreneurs who do not remember what they had to do in the early steps of their career. I was talking to, you know, one of the top business podcasters in the industry, probably the top business podcaster in the industry. I remember asking him like, you know, early on about, you know, audience growth and marketing and, and how he targeted guests and, he gave kind of these canned generic answers, but really what I was realizing is he doesn't remember. He does not remember what it took to get those first 10 downloads or those first 100 subscribers or the first you know 200 five-star reviews. He doesn't remember. He's too far removed for it. And I think that, and it's one of the things I appreciate about the questions that you're asking is you're forcing your guests to peel back the layers and actually remember what it was like in those early phases and those early iterations where things did not work out, where things didn't go as planned, where we had to navigate, we had to test things out and we had to find what worked so that you can try to kind of map out that blueprint for your listeners. Yeah, and I think it's just just to think that you know, when you're struggling with, hey, you know, this guy's here and I'm here, we're all at different spots. You've got someone that's 10 steps ahead of you you've got someone that's 10 steps below you and and we're all somewhere on a different part of our journey and and it's tough to kind of remember that sometimes so with that i mean what would you say has been the biggest challenge that you've faced in business and and what did you do to overcome it i would say it's a continuous thing and that i really believe was put in front of everyone's field of vision in the last 18 months that understanding that business is always in a, in a constant state of change. We do not want it to be. We want to be able to take what we did last year, tweak a few things, but really replicate the process and improve upon it for the next year. And then cycle it again and again and again. And if it were that easy, we'd all be a lot further along the path. But the truth is, is that industries change, economies change, technology changes, competition changes, there there are new advancements in what consumer demand is. It is this constant state of change. And I look at the work that I'm doing now, it's not even the same work I was doing two years ago, much less 20 years ago when when I got this start. Fortunately, as a photographer, I'm used to that change because when I became a photographer, there was this big discussion between film and digital where people were saying, you know, real professionals will never use digital technology. Real pros use film. Real pros shoot film. Well, what happened? Consumers demanded digital assets and thus everyone had to make that change or you became irrelevant. Then it was social media. Well, real clients will never hire people off MySpace at the time. Well, guess what? Consumer demand dictated that we want to find the people we want to connect with and work with and build relationships with off these social platforms. Unless you're there, once again, you become irrelevant. And then we saw the same thing in 2008. I would sit in in meetings of the American Society of Media Photographers, you know, this kind of old guard of the the photo industry, and sit around these, you know, quote unquote, legends within the industry, grumbling and complaining. 
because of what's happening within the photo industry. And they're complaining that, you know, all these young professionals are coming into the space and they're ruining the industry. They're giving away all the all their rights. They, they, they're doing way too many services. They're not charging enough. They're ruining the industry by lowering the rates within the industry. And it's killing it for all of us. And now we're all struggling because of it. Now, when I heard that, I was just like, my first thought is, well, you're just not working hard enough. Like you become lazy, you become complacent. But now what I understood is they had it backwards. They thought that new people coming into an industry were changing the industry by giving everything away. Wrong. What was changing in the industry was once again, consumer demand. Consumers were demanding something different. They were demanding more assets. They were demanding more medias. They were demanding all these new things. All these new people entering the industry were just at the forefront. Just like I was at the forefront during the digital revolution, it was not hard for me to get into digital technology because I entered into the industry right when it was becoming a thing. Same with those doing social media. Same with those who were providing photos and video or photo, video, and audio and all these other things. It's all about what consumers demand. And we saw again in 2020 where, yes, we were forced into certain businesses or forced to provide certain services over the last 18 months. But really, we were forced to do it because consumers were demanding something different. So when I look at the the biggest challenge, it's coming to terms with that. It's reconciling that fact that even now in 2021, consumer demand is shifting again after nearly a year, whether it was in quarantine or, you know, locked at home or, you know, purchasing different things, guess what? What consumers want in 2021 is not what they wanted in 2019. It is not. It has evolved. So having to look at all of our services from my photo business to to my conference, to the mastermind, to our online memberships, to our everything has to evolve to what consumers need tomorrow, not what they needed yesterday. I think that's the biggest challenge, but it's a challenge that I get excited about because I'm comfortable with having my head on a swivel, with pivoting, with trying to figure out what people need next. I mean, the only reason, if you think back to where we started this conversation, the only reason my career as a photographer got to where it was, was because I got out ahead of something. And of course, because I did the work, right? It's not, it wasn't luck. I had to do the work, but the same thing has to apply to all the other businesses. Unless we're willing to try to adapt, we're just going to be the person standing at the edge of the world, waving our arms, hoping things will go back. And it just won't because that tidal wave of change will wash right over us. What a good point. We have to be in a, a constant state of, of being ready to change and being okay with change and, and not fearing change. Because to your point, customers are going to demand something different from us two years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And if we don't change, we're, we're not going to be around. What would you say then has been the best moment in your business's history if you could just pick one? That is such a tricky thing. Because I mean, there are certain milestones that I could pick. But I'll be honest, the thing about milestones is anytime I hit a milestone, it feels good for a little bit, but I'm really bad at self-congratulating and I just move on to the next milestone. It's like, all right, well, what can we do next? Mm -hmm. That's a self-critique that I'm just not good at celebrating. I would say the biggest breakthrough I've had mentally within business is 
the following understanding because I was always struggling with those milestones of, you know, I'll be successful when I, you know, add in financial metric, add in, you know, number of clients, add in number, whatever it is. I'd always feel the same after. Mm -hmm. And at some point you can really burn yourself out at this endless pursuit without ever feeling a fulfillment. And what I realized along the way was that success and or fulfillment, and I'll use those words interchangeably, should never be based on conditions. Because whenever I base on conditions, I can just change the conditions, right? Mm. Well, I hit six figures, you know, I feel successful. No, real pros are multiple six. I hit multiple six. I should be successful. No, not till you hit half a million. Well, I hit that. I should be, no, no, not till you hit seven figures or, you know, 500 covers or best-selling author or top down, whatever it is, I'll always change the rules and always have to, you know, which I like to do as someone who wants to motivate myself, but it's really bad when you're trying to lift yourself up. And what I realize is that success or fulfillment is not conditional. It's a choice. So that right there was a big shift for me because then I realized that, well, I have that choice every single day. I can choose success. I can choose fulfillment. Hmm. I don't have to hit a condition. There are days I have rough days. There are days where we lose project. There are days where things get canceled. There are days we lose money. And I could feel like a failure that day or I can choose to feel successful. And I choose the latter. Just like on days where things go really well, I choose success. All right. Once I realized that success was not conditional, that was a choice that really shifted my overall satisfaction in the work I do. And I think that right there would be, would be my advice is, are conditions important? Are goals important? Of course. But stop tying your success to them and stop tying your fulfillment to them. Make it a choice. And it's a choice you can have every day. That's a, a great piece of advice. Who do you consider a mentor? And what would you say is the most important lesson they've taught you? I've been fortunate that I've had a lot of really good mentors, like the aforementioned when I was in college, who who really pushed me into photography versus versus just being a writer. I say just being a writer, being a writer is a very outstanding opportunity to have. But the one that comes to mind in regards to best advice, like I can I can I can tell a joke about my early college mentor who says, you know, James, you want to take beautiful photos? I said, yeah. I said, well, then go photograph beautiful things, and that was kind of like his his kind of snarky approach to life, which is simplify it and just go do it. But the best advice that I still follow to this day was I had this VP at the marketing company I worked for who knew I was trying to build my business on the side and asked me how things were going one day. And I says, you know, they're going well. He says, do you really want to accelerate your business growth? I said, well, yeah. And I remember I took out like a pen and paper, like just ready for whatever he was about to say, assuming he would give me this massive dissertation. And all he ended up saying was, be seen, be heard, be read. And then he left my office. And I was like, okay, well, what does that mean? Be seen, be heard, be read. And that right there became the cornerstone of how I do my outbound marketing, which is very proactive, not reactive. Be seen, be heard, be read. It's omnipotent marketing. So this is the the really the idea behind all the external push we do to land media features, to speak at events, to, to be featured in podcasts, in magazines, to, to get involved in associations, not just be a member of an association, but to be a board member, to speak at this conference. The more we can get in front of our audience and give value in front of them where they are, the more we give them a reason to come back into our ecosystem. Audiences and, and leads, they're not created, they're tapped into. 
So understanding where your audience is and tapping in there, whether it's, you know, having a podcast interview, whether it's landing a media feature, whether it's speaking at an event, whether it's a digital article that, that you're contributing, all of it is an opportunity to get in front of your audience where they are and give value to them which then gives them a reason to enter back into your ecosystem. So six words, three things, be seen, be heard, be read. And it's still something that we operate by to this day. What great advice. And here I'm, as you're telling the story, I'm trying to guess what the advice was. And I thought it might be quit this job, <laughs> but that was much he, he was, better advice. He was, he was happy when I quit it. That's good. So before we get to the last question, where can our listeners find out more about you and your business? Absolutely. So super simple. Jamespatrick.com is my website at jpatrickphoto on Instagram. And then fitposium.com is our conference. Awesome. So if you could hop into a time machine and go back to when you started, first started your, your photo business, what's one piece of advice you'd give your past self? Start earlier. That's it right there. I said at the start, like I really struggled with that identification of calling myself a photographer because of that imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And what I've come to realize that imposter syndrome is actually a really good thing because having that imposter syndrome, having it rear its head just means you're figuring things out. And we don't judge each other for figuring things out. We actually figure things out and we see that in a positive context. But for some reason, imposter syndrome, we see negatively. We should call ourselves imposters. We should wear that badge of I had no idea how to be a photographer when I picked up a camera. Same thing with writing, same thing with podcasting, same thing with, yeah. with hosting events. I had never hosted an event before. So we should be proud to be imposters, to figure things out. So my advice to myself would have been to start earlier because I was so afraid of being judged or being told I couldn't do it or being told I didn't have the right to do it. And you know, to get back to when I actually turned in my notice at my marketing job, the exact words that came out of my boss's mouth when I said, all right, I give my notice after you know seven years at this company, he leaned back in his chair, he sighed and he said, I'm surprised it took you that long. His exact words, proof right there that I waited too long to do it. How'd that make you feel? Relieved. Oh, that's good. Leave. Yeah. I was just like, whew, finally. Because, you know, I had probably tried to quit maybe two or three other times before that, but always talk myself out of I'm like, well, the hours are great. I get great benefits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, health insurance is expensive. And, you know what? I'm doing okay working, you know, working my life away every evening and every weekend and every vacation day and every sick day. It's not that bad. Maybe I just need to save up a little more. Right. I kept trying to, I kept giving myself permission to continue where I was because I think the thing that we don't want to do the most is is enter into a state of unknown, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know what's going to happen if I do this. But at some point, like I just it got so uncomfortable that I just had to make that transition over. And to have him immediately say I'm surprised it took you that long was that wave of reassurance that this was the right decision. Awesome. Well, thanks for all the value you provided today. A lot, a lot of great information in the episode and really loved having you on, James. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. And just want to give a vote of appreciation to you because podcasts like what you do, had they existed earlier on in my career, I truly believe it would have given me a roadmap and confidence to make decisions like I made much earlier in the process. These things did not exist when we were when we were cutting our teeth and we just had to jump often on a lot of blind hope that something's going to work out. And I really want to thank you for, for doing a show like this because it gives people permission to move forward with more clarity and confidence. 
Well, I appreciate it. And again, thanks for being on. You're you're definitely the star of this show today and, and you provided so much value. So I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Small Business School podcast. If you like what you heard, please share it and leave a review. It would mean the world to us. If you are a small business owner or looking to start a business, join the Small Business School Facebook group. It's a private community of people focused on helping each other take their businesses to the next level. To learn more about our guest today or to be a feature guest on the Small Business School, go to craigsdaily.com forward slash podcast for more info.